Hello, welcome to another episode of Freaking Out About Opening Day with Randy Freaking, the podcast about the history and celebrations of Cincinnati's most revered non-religious holiday. In this episode 17, we revisit openers from 2001 through 2010, a period when a new ballpark was unveiled, but the Reds struggled to become competitive. As the decade ended, a young set of stars set the stage for success beginning in 2011. But the holiday just kept getting better and better despite the disappointing play on the field. So, let's get to it. We call 2001 New Synergy. The excitement for the April 2 opener was as much about the renovation of the Concrete Bowl formerly known as Riverfront Stadium, as it was about the team. Construction of Great American Ballpark had begun just east of the stadium. The new ballpark was so close to Synergy Field that 14,000 seats in left field had to be removed to make room for the new ballpark. The bite out of the stadium resulted in unprecedented views of Mount Adams, the river, and the twin towers of Procter & Gamble. The new look provided relief to any fan who had previously felt claustrophobic in the bowl-like confines of Riverfront Stadium. With about 30% of the seats eliminated, access to tickets was a simple matter of supply and demand. All opening day tickets that had not been spoken for were sold within a few hours of going on sale including 1,500 standing-room-only tickets. Only 41,901 patrons could squeeze their way into the scaled-down version of Synergy Field. Unlike the soggy conditions in 2000 that greeted Ken Griffey Jr., the weather was sunny and slightly cold in 2001. A record number of people came out to enjoy the spectacle of another parade. The 18-block route was packed to capacity. For this 82nd annual parade, members of the historic Southwest Ohio dressed in uniforms of the 1869 Cincinnati Red Stockings, the first professional team that was romanticized by Reds fans everywhere. A mere 132 years later, That first team had paraded to Union Grounds in the West End in a caravan of fancy, ribbon-adorned carriages, followed by hundreds of so-called merry cranks for the first-ever opening day. On this day, the members of the Historical Society marched in a similar fashion, but this time there was 100,000 fans watching as they paraded by in their white flannel uniforms and blazing scarlet hosiery. Harry Wright's boys of 1869 would have been proud. After the parade, fans lucky enough to have secured a ticket proceeded to a type of ballpark they had not seen since Crosley Field hosted games in 1970. Red's second baseman, Pokey Reese, said it best, quote, sweet, now it looks like a baseball field, unquote. Instead of artificial turf, there was grass. The retro makeover had required home plate to be moved 10 feet closer to the stands, giving the park a more intimate feel. In center field, there was no longer an 8-foot fence, but rather a new black monster that was 40 feet high. Batters that previously hit long home runs over the center field wall would now see them carom back into play, and they could only hope for a double or perhaps a rare triple. United States Senator Mike DeWine, a longtime Red season ticket holder, threw out the ceremonial first pitch. His toss was low and in the dirt. Martina McBride, a country music star, prepared to perform her rendition of the national anthem. As the crowd faced the American flag, They noticed four big birds 10 miles away. But these were not the traditional pigeons released on openers, and they were coming in at 350 miles per hour. 
slowing down to a mere 300 miles per hour, the four F-16 fighter jets from the 181st Fighter Wing of the Indiana National Guard roared over Synergy Field seconds after McBride's voice rang out with the last note of the Star-Spangled Banner. The formation of the planes was perfect. Colonel J. Stuart Goodwin later told a reporter that the flyover was no wasteful joyride. The pilots had recently returned from a month-long tour of duty over Iraq's no-fly zone. On this day, the jets had just finished a practice bombing run in neighboring Indiana. When the starting lineups were announced, Ken Griffey Jr. was not one of the players named. He had suffered a strained left hamstring at the end of spring training and was sidelined. The Atlanta Braves spoiled the party even further by scoring six runs in the last three innings, winning 10-4. Fans, however, got to see something they had not seen since the days of Crosley Field. Braves shortstop Rafael Fercal launched a home run over the left field fence in the seventh inning that traveled outside of the stadium. A construction worker picked up the ball and returned it to the ball players by heaving it over the eight-foot wall. Okay, 2002, we call this Buy Me Some Peanuts and Vegetable Lasagna? Ken Griffey Sr. was honored as the Grand Marshal of the 2002 parade. Sr. explained his duties. Quote, I'm to sit in the car, wave, and smile. Unquote. And that he did. Tens of thousands of spectators from the tri-state region surrounding Cincinnati were decked out in red hats, shirts, and jackets. It was a Midwestern Mardi Gras. When the marching bands, floats, unicycles, fire engines, police vehicles, and pickup trucks carrying politicians completed their pilgrimage, Taft declared that the parade was a success. Quote, opening day is something that unites everyone. It brings everyone together, unquote. There were few tears shed for and little mention of the fact that this would be the last opener for the 32-year-old stadium that was once a crown jewel. The time had come for a new ballpark that was slated to be ready in time for the next season. In something pretty unusual, Synergy Field was named the fifth most vegetarian-friendly major league stadium in the country by the people for the ethical treatment of animals. While the park certainly sold large quantities of burgers and hot dogs washed down with beer, Patrons could now buy veggie hot dogs or tossed green salads. The item that particularly impressed PETA was the park's offering of veggie lasagna. PETA's sports campaign coordinator, Dan Shannon, called the menu item a home run. With Great American Ballpark scheduled to open in 2003, the Reds presented fans entering the park with a lapel pin that replicated patches on the players' uniforms. The pin featured a picture of Synergy Field and the skyline of the city. During pregame ceremonies, Governor Robert Taft threw out the ceremonial first pitch. He was tired from having marched through downtown, and his toss was a slow lob. President George W. Bush's taped message to the crowd played on the video scoreboard. He greeted fans and then declared, quote, God bless you all. God bless America. And now play ball, unquote. The fans applauded for 10 seconds. The Reds responded with a proper send-off to the ballpark. Barry Larkin sprinted home from third base in the bottom of the ninth inning to secure a 5-4 win over Chicago. The team had performed well at Riverfront slash Synergy on opening days, winning 20 of 32 openers with one tie. Okay, 2003, we call this Unveiling Great American Ballpark, or as it's now known as simply GABP.
March 31 was an opener anticipated not just since the conclusion of the 2002 season, but rather for several years as the city, county, and team made plans for a new retro ballpark. The venue would have features reminiscent of the parks that preceded Riverfront Stadium and others of its era. Great American Ballpark would be more intimate than Riverfront Stadium, having 10,000 fewer seats and would have lush green grass instead of artificial turf. Fans eagerly anticipated seeing the notch in the upper deck that would reveal the city skyline and allow views of the Ohio River and the hills of Kentucky. They were also eager to see the bleachers in right field that were modeled after the sun and moon decks of Crosley Field. Now, the Iraq War was just 11 days old, so the Reds adjusted the hour-long pregame ceremonies to resemble the ceremonies preceding openers during World War I and World War II. Opening day was going to be a long day. Game time was not until 4.10 p.m., so the parade was scheduled to start at noon. But that didn't mean the party could not start as early as it always did. Local bars began to fill even before 9 a.m. A rousing Reds rally took place on Fountain Square. The rally was broadcast live on local television for those waiting for the temperatures to warm, but 30,000 others chose to clutch blankets and parkas to combat the chilly weather. The day had started off cold and cloudy, but eventually the thermometer read 50 degrees once the parade began to roll. Former Reds pitching star Tom Browning served as Grand Marshal. Browning had earned the nickname of Mr. Perfect because in 1987, he had become the first and only Reds pitcher and only the 12th in Major League history to throw a perfect game. Shortly after the parade started, Browning halted the march as he took time to embrace his old boss, Marge Schott, who appeared to be in frail condition. Special additions to the parade were several floats that were part of the Bats Incredible public art project of Cincinnati Artworks, an art-oriented employment and job training program for youth in the Cincinnati area. The floats drew attention to the 50 or so signature Louisville Slugger bat displays that had been stationed along the route, at Fountain Square, and in building lobbies. Each display was created by local artists who transformed the bats into works of art. Paid sponsorships supported the artist's work with the number of bats in each piece reflecting the level of sponsorship. A $10,000 Grand Slam sponsorship allowed the artist to use up to 134-inch bats and to earn a $2,500 honorarium. The Clydesdales were back as part of the parade as always. Two of the horses had done extra duty by visiting patients at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center on Sunday afternoon. The Bucket Boys and Buckets featured two dozen teenage boys and girls dressed in blue jumpsuits. They seemed to be making more noise than the marching bands that were in front of them. In a show of love for the banished hometown star, the Contemporary Art Center chose 50 men named Pete to march in red jackets that read P-E-T-E in big white letters. Tom Browning received a rose to clench in his teeth as he waved to the crowd. As the parade ended, the festivities at the ballpark began. At 2 p.m., the Reds celebrated the opening of Great American Ballpark by unveiling a statue of Ted Klazuski in what was called Crosley Terrace, which served as the new park's front entrance. Big Clue's widow, Eleanor, pulled a red tarp off the larger-than-life statue 
depicting the Reds' first baseman standing in the on-deck circle holding a pair of bats on his left shoulder. Once inside, the patriotic feel began to take hold. Every fan was given a miniature American flag, and the Pete Wagner band played patriotic tunes. After a number of introductions of dignitaries and speeches, the players were introduced along the baselines. After the Reds' starting lineup was introduced, members of the Ohio Historical Society again emerged from the outfield tunnel through a cloud of smoke. They were dressed in their 1869 Cincinnati Red Stockings uniforms. The crowd roared its approval, and singer Lee Greenwood sang his trademark song, God Bless the USA, before the introduction of two special dignitaries. They were New York City's singing policeman, Donnie Rodriguez, and former President George H.W. Bush. Rodriguez had gained national attention for his performances after the 9-11 attacks on our country. He sang the national anthem while great American ballpark construction workers unfurled a giant American flag that covered much of the outfield. Two C-130 military transport planes from the Ohio Air National Guard's 179th Airlift Wing rumbled low over the ballpark. Red, white, and blue streamers were released from the top deck as fireworks flew from the smokestacks in center field. The former president threw a high, arching, ceremonial first pitch to Red shortstop Barry Larkin. Bush received a huge ovation after telling the crowd of 42,343, quote, It's an honor to be here today, off the bench, substituting for another guy you know, President George W. Bush. I'm the proudest daddy in the world, unquote. The game was broadcast to the Middle East and Africa on the American Armed Forces Network. Griffey recorded the first hit in the new ballpark, a double down the right field line in the bottom of the first inning. That was the last of the celebrations as the Pirates rolled to a 10-1 victory. Okay, we move to 2004, which is a tribute to Schott. Marge Schott, the most visible and controversial owner in Reds history, and a strong supporter of opening day traditions, passed away at age 75, just 34 days before the April 5, 2004 opener. The Finley Market Organization paid tribute to its biggest fan by retiring her Reds jacket and displaying it along the parade route. Because she was such a strong supporter of the Cincinnati Zoo, and helped pay for a new elephant house in 2000, an elephant sporting a Reds hat and a red cape was chosen to sound the siren, using his trunk, of course, that kicked off the parade. Schott's sisters took her place in the procession, accompanied by 21 St. Bernard dogs. Spectators arrived as early as 8 a.m. to stake out a location at the prime viewing spot, Fountain Square, just short of where the parade traditionally ended. Former Pittsburgh Pirate and Cincinnati Reds great Dave Parker was the Grand Marshal. Parker waved, smiled, and laughed along the route, leading 182 entries past the throng of well-wishers. He was a popular native Cincinnatian. The parade included the customary cast of celebrities and politicians riding in their convertibles, 20 marching bands and drill teams, and the Belgian horses leading a replica tally-ho wagon. Popular radio personality Jim Scott walked in the parade in front of the 21-dog salute the shot. He was accompanied by Steve Stewart, the new Reds guy, according to Scott. Stewart was the heir to Joe Nuxall's spot in the radio booth that Nuxall shared with Marty Brenneman. 
Stewart was scheduled to be in the booth in 2004 to learn the ropes during Nuxall's final full-time season. A 1950s-style flannel uniform was worn by Jeff Waymire in the parade. The uniform had been donned by his father, Herm, a Reds pitcher, for eight seasons. Waymire strode beside Jim Tarbell, who did his traditional impersonation of peanut Jim Shelton. Now, American troops were still in Iraq, so fans were presented with small flags as they entered the park. It was a day to remember the troops and to honor the memory of Shot. Red's management played a video tribute to the former owner during pregame ceremonies that reminded fans of her best qualities. The presentation showed Shot waving to the crowds at the parade, planting kisses on the cheeks of players, and leading her big, friendly St. Bernard around the stadium turf. The message included a quote from the former First Lady of the Reds, quote, Opening day is history, honey, and you've got to keep history going, unquote. A second tribute that day was dedicated to Darnell Stenson, a young Reds outfielder murdered in Chandler, Arizona on November 5. Highlights of Stenson's life and baseball career played on the ballpark's big screen. Country singer Sarah Evans belted out, God Bless America, followed by Nick Lachey singing the national anthem in a Johnny Bench jersey. Cincinnati native Lachey had performed the anthem with the group 98 Degrees in 2000, but this solo performance had teenage girls gathered behind home plate, squealing when the pop star took center stage. The spotlight then turned to Vice President Dick Cheney. A vocal proponent of the war, Cheney was applauded as he walked to the pitcher's mound and delivered the first pitch. After that, Reds fans would again be disappointed in the result, losing to the Cubs 7-4. Now we call 2005 the hoopla factor. Reds fans were hoping for a return to the victory column on April 5, 2005. After two successive defeats on opening day, they realized that no Reds team had ever won the World Series without winning the first game of the season. Hopes were high as center fielder Ken Griffey Jr. was expected to be healthy, coming off a season-ending injury in late 2004. Demand for opening day tickets was at an all-time high. Individual tickets sold out in 12 minutes on February 19. Scalpers were asking and receiving $125 for standing room-only tickets with a $15 face value. The city fire marshal allowed the Reds to add to the number of standing room only tickets so 451 more people could attend the opener that had been permitted just two years earlier. George Vredeveld, director of the University of Cincinnati's Economic Center for Education and Research, explained that demand was so high because of, quote, the hoopla factor, unquote caused by, quote, the pageantry of the event, unquote. It was a perfect day for baseball. Bobby Unaware, one of Marge Schott's sisters, assumed the duty of signaling the beginning of the annual parade. She blew the horn of a fire engine, sending six loud and long blasts into the air. She then hopped into a car provided by one of her sister's former car dealership competitors. Six men wearing monk's robes called themselves the Brothers Inebriate, and they were hitched to a giant wooden goat made out of beer barrels. The goat pretended to nibble an extra-large baseball cap of the day's opponent, the Mets. The Grand Marshal was a football player, Rudy Johnson of the NFL Bengals. He received applause as he led the parade, but his reception paled 
in comparison to the one accorded to the Reds' legendary radio voice, Joe Nuxall, who was semi-retired from the broadcast booth. Fans leaped from the sidewalks to shake Joe's hand and ask for his autograph. He willingly obliged. Jason Edwards, age 30, and his family marched with the Rosie Reds. Jason had thrown out the first pitch to Johnny Bench on opening day 25 years earlier. Jason was born with spina bifida, and his parents fondly recalled the honor bestowed upon him in 1980. Inside the ballpark, 100 soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines carried a giant American flag to the outfield. The flag bearers included 67 members of the Ohio National Guard's 216th Engineer Battalion, a Hamilton, Ohio-based unit that had returned earlier in the year from a tour in Iraq. Three members of the battalion had been killed in action. Staff Sergeant Greg Arthur's mind returned to Iraq as the flag was slowly unfurled. Quote, I think of all the little things we take for granted here that we did not have there, unquote, he told a reporter. The national anthem was then performed by Air Force Staff Sergeant Felita Rowe before a jet black B-2 stealth bomber soared over center field. U.S. Congressman Rob Portman then signaled the start of the season with the first pitch. Newly acquired third baseman Joe Randa would hit the last pitch of the day over the left field wall to give the Reds a stunning 7-6 come-from-behind win in walk-off fashion. Now we turn to 2006, which begins a new era, and we call 2006 simply a new start. Bob Castellini bought the Reds during the winter and promised a new focus on returning to championship baseball. As April 3, 2006 approached, the opener had the look of an official state holiday. Castellini had arranged for something that had never occurred in the 137-year history of the Reds. A sitting president, in this case, George W. Bush, would throw out the first pitch. Bush would become only the third sitting president to attend a professional baseball game in Cincinnati. William Howard Taft had visited the ballpark in 1912, and Richard Nixon appeared at the 1970 All-Star Game, but neither had thrown the first pitch. Castellini had orchestrated Bush's appearance to drum up excitement for opening day, and he certainly succeeded. Fittingly, Reds Hall of Fame pitcher Mario Soto, who had started five openers from 1982 to 1986, was chosen as the Grand Marshal. Soto traveled slowly in a silver Corvette convertible, hanging over the side to sign autographs as the spectators applauded. He was followed by former Reds pitcher Jim O'Toole, who rode in a vintage Oldsmobile convertible. The club's first African-American player, Chuck Harmon, came next in a vintage black Corvette. Mayor Mark Mallory joined other politicians on the route, but unlike the others who paraded on foot, Mallory was seated on the back seat of a red Mustang convertible accompanied by 10 mounted police officers. Now, the most unusual entry in the parade was a group of white and orange bobcats. Bobcats of the earth-moving variety that snake through the downtown streets. The bobcats stopped occasionally to perform spins, twists, and circles to entertain the spectators. When the parade ended, fans hurried to the stadium. Metal detectors had been installed, and Secret Service agents were stationed outside the park to search bags. Anti-war protesters marched as fans stood in line for an hour. The picket signs had baseball themes such as Go Reds! Stop the War in Iraq! and 
Reds steal bases. Bush steals your kids. After standing in line and arriving in their seats, patrons received free many American flags again in their cup holders so they could wave them during pregame ceremonies. After the usual pageantry that preceded the game, President Bush took center stage. He was accompanied by two wounded war veterans, Paul Brondhaver of Union Township, Ohio, and Michael McNaughton of Louisiana. Brondhaver was a National Guard sergeant severely wounded in Iraq, and he walked with a cane. McNaughton lost a leg in Afghanistan and had bonded with President Bush during Bush's visit to an Army hospital there. Bush was also joined by John Przinsky, the father of Marine Lance Corporal Taylor Przinsky, who had perished in action in Afghanistan. Bush waved to the cheering, standing-room-only crowd that was eager to watch his delivery. Bush later said, quote, It was my best pitch, which was kind of a slow ball, unquote. Unfortunately, the first game of the Castellini era did not go as plans. The Cubs won easily, jumping to a 5-1 lead in the first inning and scoring the most runs, 16, by a visitor on opening day since May 14, 1877. Okay, onward to 2007. And this is called A Fresh Start for Josh Hamilton. As April 2 approached, Red's country was reinvigorated by the team's improvement during the previous season. At Castellini's urging, fans were being patient. Most simply wanted to see more progress. Finishing above 500 was a goal for many fans. The Reds and Cubs were meeting for the fourth time in six openers, and it was the 36th time that they would face each other on opening day. That was more times with the Cubs as with any other opponent on opening day. The club continued to enhance the ballpark, this year adding a two-story riverboat in center field for group outings. The biggest offseason move intrigued fans. The Reds acquired Josh Hamilton via what is called a Rule 5 draft trade. Rule 5 requires a team acquiring a player to keep him on the major league roster for the entire season or risk losing him. Signing Hamilton was a feel-good story. Hamilton was left unprotected in the Rule 5 draft after drug addiction and multiple suspensions cost him nearly four seasons in baseball. General Manager Wayne Krivsky convinced Castellini it was worth taking a risk on Hamilton. During spring training, Hamilton had exceeded expectations and was welcomed on the opening day roster. This day began under partly sunny skies with warm temperatures. It was a perfect day for a parade. Finley Market organizers reported that the march would include 6,600 humans and 288 vehicles, including bicycles, unicycles, cars, trucks, motorcycles, and horse-drawn carriages. Fans of every age filled the sidewalks in Fountain Square. Many had tickets to the game, but most came downtown simply to be part of the festivities. The two-and-a-half-hour spectacle featured a star player from the 1990 World Championship team, Eric Davis, as the Grand Marshal. Davis, decked out in a black suit with small red checks, rode on a fire truck and was warmly received, mostly because he was one of the former greats, but also because Castellini had invited him to spring training as a special assistant. Applause for Davis took a backseat to cheering for the parents of Matt Maupin. Maupin was a local soldier who had been missing in action in Iraq for three years. His parents received a deafening welcome. Coco, the singing parrot from the Cincinnati Zoo, could be heard perfectly despite being slightly ahead of the Anderson High School marching band. 
members of the Oak Hills High School dance team showed off their moves while wearing their signature red lipstick. Forty men from Wapakoneta, Ohio, entered the parade as the Precision Power Mower Team, with their roaring lawnmowers cutting through any weeds that happened to be on the city streets. Mr. Red strolled along with the Reds' cheerleaders, who wore replica jerseys. The cheerleaders would later entertain the crowd during the game, an innovation that lasted for a few years but seemed out of place at baseball games. Not to be outdone, the crowd got into the act as well. Scott Polkamp from Cleveland arrived in his Elvis Presley-style red jumpsuit. Dan Thomas of Florence, Kentucky was dressed in a replica uniform of the 1869 red stockings. He was a member of a vintage baseball team that played at a local park during the summer. The pregame ceremonies included the revival of the old mustachioed mascot of the Reds from the Crosley Field era, Mr. Redlegs. As the market organizers came on the field for the customary presentations to the Reds, great pomp and circumstance was reserved for Mr. Redlegs. He entered the ballpark, circling the field while swinging a baseball bat atop a sport utility vehicle. The next noteworthy feature of the pregame was a moment that will live in opening day infamy. Mayor Mark Mallory had practiced for his ceremonial pitch, isolating himself in the batting cages under the stands next to the Reds' dugout in order to warm up. When the big moment came, the mayor walked to the mound and then turned and joked with the crowd. He assumed his pitching stance by playfully walking to the bottom of the mound before going to the pitching rubber. With the ball in his right hand and his black glove in his left hand, he pretended he was holding a runner on base. When he finally threw the ball, it was undoubtedly the worst toss in first pitch history on opening day. It was well short and way left of catcher Eric Davis. The home plate umpire, Randy Marsh, jokingly threw the mayor out of the game. Mallory did not laugh, and the crowd booed the pitch. The cringeworthy 15 seconds would become a sensation on YouTube as one of the worst first pitches anywhere. The Reds were then treated to one of the best-played Reds openers. The club thumped the Cubs 5-1, starting with Adam Dunn launching a home run in the first inning. The highlight, though, was reserved for Hamilton. When he was announced as a pinch hitter in the eighth inning, the crowd gave him a 22-second standing ovation. The cheers nearly brought him to his knees. He then hit a line drive that was caught, but the crowd gave him another ovation as he trotted back to the dugout. Hamilton dominated media coverage of the game, because he was on the road to recovery. And the fans hoped that the Reds were also on the road to recovery. Okay, let's move to 2008, and we'll simply call this a solemn day. After the disappointing 2007 season, about the only excitement for March 31, 2008, related to local construction. Later that week, Governor George Voinovich was scheduled to break ground at the Banks, the same riverfront site that was once called the Bottoms. It was where the first settlers of Cincinnati landed in 1788, and city and county officials hoped it would turn into a vibrant destination for people to live, work, and play. Fans looked forward to visiting the Banks before, during, and after Reds games in the coming seasons. There was a sad event affecting Reds' fans' spirits on a rainy opening day. Fan favorite Joe Noxall had lost his battle with cancer on November 15. The 2008 season would be dedicated to him. Former Reds center fielder Cesar Geronimo, a member of the Big Red Machine, was the Grand Marshal of the parade. The cloudy, 
Wet weather matched the fans' mood, sad and reserved. The parade was dominated by tributes to Nuxall. A WLW radio float with a chair and microphone symbolizing Nuxall's career as a legendary announcer was followed by Nuxall's 1989 Lincoln Continental. Riding in the car was Nuxall's son Kim and Kim's wife. The rain continued at the ballpark. Pre-game ceremonies were delayed, but F-18 jets from the Marine Fighter Attack Squadron 224 arrived during the downpour as scheduled. When the Reds were introduced, each player darted from the dugout to the first baseline. A murmur became a roar as the crowd realized that each player had the same word and number on his back. Nuxall, 41. Aaron Harang, the day's starting pitcher, received permission from Major League Baseball to wear the commemorative jersey during the game. The other players removed theirs after introductions and donned their regular jerseys. Each jersey had a black patch on the sleeve with Nuxy, N-U-X-Y, in white, a tribute that would remain throughout the season. The bank's chief proponent, County Commissioner Todd Portoon, threw out the first pitch. Harang took the mound to start the game, but not before he drew a 41 in the dirt on the mound. The sad atmosphere of the game was compounded by the Reds losing 4-2. Okay, 2009, we call this Fickle Mother Nature. Despite the disappointment of the two previous seasons, Reds fans continued to believe in Bob Castellini and his plan. The team had young hitters that seemed to form a productive nucleus. Brandon Phillips, Joey Votto, and Jay Bruce. There were also young pitchers, such as Johnny Cueto and Edinson Volquez. Everyone was geared up for April 6, 2009. The opener was a little later than it had been in recent years, and fans figured there was a better chance of nice weather. The game was an early sellout. There were plenty of opportunities to begin the day-long party early in the morning and continue it well into the evening. Streets were closed as early as 7.30 a.m., and an all-day party was planned on Fountain Square beginning at 9 o'clock. There was live music and televising the game on the giant screen above Macy's that faced the square. Game Day Sports Cafe, which was offering kegs and eggs, opened at 5 a.m. WLW Radio was scheduled to broadcast from the location all day. There were no less than 14 other venues within blocks of the parade and ballpark that opened early in the morning with food and drink specials. Parade organizers expected another huge crowd as Hall of Famer Frank Robinson was Grand Marshal and two of the young Reds, Volquez and Cueto, were going to ride in the parade. The day preceding the opener was a beautiful Sunday with 70-degree temperatures. However, Mother Nature decided to switch things up. From 70 degrees, temperatures dipped into the low 30s, and along with the plummeting temperatures, came a chance of snow. At best, opening day was certain to see rain. Fans planning to take in all the festivities suddenly decided to stay indoors. The crowd lining the parade was the smallest in years, as evidenced by spectators being only one or two deep along the sidewalks. Despite the inclement weather, Robinson was a big hit with the crowd. The brave souls along the route waved to him enthusiastically from under their blankets and ponchos. Robinson, dressed in his pinstriped Reds jersey with number 20 on the back, rode in the back of a white Mustang convertible with a red interior. It was a throwback to the white Thunderbird with red interior that he had driven when he played for the Reds in the late 50s and early 60s. That is, before he was traded in one of the most controversial trades in Reds history. Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Bootsy Collins 
a native Cincinnatian traveled the route sporting red, star-shaped glasses. He was part of the Yellow Ribbon Support Center contingent. His SUV followed a vehicle with a sign saying, quote, remember my face, unquote, that also displayed photos of the late soldier Matt Maupin, who had passed away. Maupin's father was scheduled to ride with Collins, but ironically, he had to attend a funeral instead. Fans shivered on their way to the ballpark. Once inside, they marveled at the new 39-foot by 138-foot scoreboard that was showing high-def highlights of previous championship teams. Digital ribbon boards graced the fascia off the second deck of the bleachers and ran along the first and third baselines. Longtime official score of the Reds, Glenn Sample, was remembered with a moment of silence in pregame ceremonies for his 29 years of service. He had passed away five months earlier. The Reds also honored armed forces members wounded in battle in Iraq and Afghanistan, and a parade of colors featured honor guard units from each military branch. Four F-16s from the 178th Fighter Wing of the Ohio Air National Guard roared over the park. Nick Lachey was brought back again, this time to throw out the ceremonial first pitch. Brian Kelly, then the coach of the University of Cincinnati Big East Championship football team, delivered the game ball to Aaron Harang, starting his fourth consecutive opener. Despite the closely contested game that was very much up for grabs, the cold was too much even for hardcore fans, many of whom decided to leave the park early before the Reds eventually lost 2-1. to one. Okay, our final year in this episode is 2010, and we call this year, Could This Be the Year? An out-of-town businessman arrived in Cincinnati on April 4, complaining to himself about the higher-than-normal hotel rates that went hand-in-hand with opening day. He then picked up the Sunday Enquirer. Even though he was a baseball fan, he had to chuckle. Quote, are these people nuts? Unquote. The local team had not had a winning season since 2000, and they were having a parade? Yes, and the paper had a special insert section called Defining the Decade, claiming, quote, the Reds have good reason to be optimistic about the next decade, unquote. What were these folks thinking, he said? Well, Reds general manager Walt Jockety had created headlines during the offseason by rekindling Cincinnatians' memories of the Griffey splash of 2000. This year, Jockety had signed pitcher Araldus Chapman, a Cuban defector, to a six-year, $30 million contract. Chapman was lauded as an ace pitcher who threw the ball over 100 miles per hour. The Reds had needed to do something to keep the faithful interested. With a recession that continued to pound family and corporate budgets, the Reds' 2009 attendance was down 400000 from the previous two seasons. The local level of interest compared unfavorably with all-time attendance records throughout MLB and with increased TV viewership for baseball overall. The club hoped to capitalize on the Araldus Chapman factor and the addition of four veteran players who could mentor their younger teammates. As the visiting businessman walked out of the Weston Hotel across from Fountain Square early in the morning, he saw hundreds of people sitting in lawn chairs on the sidewalks. He was still scratching his head when he counted no fewer than 18 bars and restaurants that were already open for business within blocks of the ballpark. The day of parting had begun early. Up to 100,000 fans were expected to come and see the Grand Marshal, legendary catcher Johnny Bench. Bench was joined by current Reds pitcher Bronson Arroyo, Reds Hall of Famers Ken Griffey Sr. and George Foster, broadcaster George Grand, and Miss Ohio USA 2010 Amanda Temple, 
who had graduated from local Roger Bacon High School in 2008. 200 parade units lined up behind bench. This parade was eclectic in its usual sense, entertaining as usual. The Cincinnati Roller Girls roller derby team interacted with the crowd while skating along. The Crosby Elementary Pop Cycles demonstrated their skills on unicycles while trailing several floats featuring a 19th century theme. Marching bands were heard throughout the 18-block carnival, with the Cincinnati Hawks marching band featuring a clown called Poppy. Grand Marshal Bench said he was stunned to be chosen for that role. He recalled his days as a player when the team had no idea what was going on outside the ballpark. Said Bench, quote, We'd stay down at the ballpark, get warmed up, and then have to wait two hours for the festivities to get over with on the field. We'd say, let this get over with. Now I know what goes on. This is like Cincinnati's Mardi Gras. This is like Augusta and the Masters Tournament, only better, unquote. When the parade finally subsided, the fifth largest crowd in the park's young history witnessed the show that occurred outside and inside the stadium. The Goshorn Brothers and Pete Wagner's Dixieland Band performed pregame concerts. The time-honored traditions of Reds' opening days played out once again with the Rosie Reds and Finley Market officials presenting gifts to the team. Four F-16s did the now-traditional flyover. Former Bengal Ben Utecht displayed his softer side by singing the national anthem. TV announcer George Grand wearing a jersey autographed by each Reds player, tossed the ceremonial first pitch to none other than Bench. Bench squatted behind home plate for the first time since his retirement in 1983. The beauty queen, Amanda Temple, delivered the official game ball to Aaron Harang. Harang was honored with his fifth consecutive opening day start, tying a Reds record. Reds fans witnessed a close game until the ninth inning when the St. Louis Cardinals scored five runs and route to an 11-4 win. Okay, and so there goes that decade, 2001 to 2010. Not a success on the field, but we can certainly say it was a success on opening day. The parties continued. They only got bigger and better. This is Randy Freaking signing off. And in the immortal words of Marty Brenneman, so long, everybody.